CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles, where we get to know people with the experience or insights that can impact our understanding of the world, and maybe even ourselves. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. Our guest, Hannah Rosen, has written a book that is staring me in the face, taunting me with big, bold, pink letters that read the end of men, and then in smaller black letters, and the rise of women. Hannah Rosen is, is it a zero-sum game, and, and is it really the end of men? You know, what I was going to say is I usually only share this with women, but the book can actually be turned into a weapon. Uh, there's instructions for that on the back page. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, I guess a more accurate title would be The End of Macho or The End of Male Dominance or something like that. What I do in the book is marry a set of economic statistics to a lot of personal stories. That's how the book is constructed. So it starts with things I noticed about the economy in 2009, the major one being that women had become that year the majority of the workforce, which is quite historically unprecedented. Uh, Also that women were getting vastly more college degrees and were generally preparing themselves better for the future economy than men were. And then what I noticed was the profound effects that shift was having on our culture. So our marriage patterns, decisions that people make about work, sex, marriage, family, all kinds of things. And so it really felt like some places in the country had turned upside down in terms of power dynamics between men and women. Now, uh, just to let you know where I'm coming from, so I, I went to Vassar College, graduated in 1981. Mm-hmm. So, so right off the bat, I was I was groomed in a place where the majority of students were women. Uh, uh, my family, like you, I have three children. I have my wife and two daughters, one son. So again, I'm in this maybe this new world that you're talking about. Uh, we do have two male dogs, but we also have 12 chickens, and they're all hens. So. <laughs> So, so, so I am, I am, I'm totally, in, and I was a little hesitant to interview you because when I heard the end of men, I thought, well, maybe it's a little too polemical for me, but my, our guest bookings department at CNN prevailed upon me. Our guest bookings department is dominated by women. In fact, I'm not even sure there's one man in our guest bookings department, which is one of the most important departments at CNN. I've grown up in newsrooms where you know, at least 50-50, but it does seem like the tide is turning and the majority of people in many of the newsrooms, I don't know about the ones you've worked in, are women. Is that part of what you're seeing, that in certain critical careers, uh, women are starting to dominate or are poised to dominate? Yeah, and it's it's not necessarily just media or, you know, professions where we talk a lot, which we all think women do quite well. Medicine is one, accounting is one, pharmacy is one that I write about uh, in different classes in America. So yeah, what you see is that professions that were once completely dominated by men now become dominated by women. Now, that doesn't mean they switch upside down. There's still ways in which women can't or don't reach the top of professions, which I write about for various reasons. Uh, But yes, that is largely what I'm talking about that you can look around you and see that there are more and more places being run by women. Now, you have to let me address this polemical thing because that's the one regret I have about this title, which I think is wonderful and memorable and definitely evokes a lot of emotion in people almost immediately, which has been great during the time I've been talking about the book. But the the insides of the book are are really rich with stories. I mean, that was the one pleasure for me of writing the book is that I try to ground every chapter in the story of a specific couple or a specific town. 
or a specific woman, uh, just to make people understand that this isn't an essay or a polemic. It's really a set of stories that show you how the country is changing. And, and I've actually read the book, and I want to talk about a couple of those stories. But first, just if you can give me that insight, who came up with the title, The End of Men? <laughs> um, funny, my male editor did at The Atlantic. Uh, I'm both an editor and a writer in my career. And as a writer, you don't have any control over the packaging. As, as an editor, you have complete control over the packaging. And I'm a writer for The Atlantic. I turn in my stories. Uh, you know, they come back to me with a cover and a headline. And there it was on the newsstand called The End of Men. I don't think I would have had the guts to call it that, frankly, because I'm a woman. But my male editor certainly did. And, you know, The Atlantic is, is, is has a male editor. I mean, most of the men in the highest positions at the Atlantic are men. And so whatever, if they want to do it, great. And then it kind of stuck to the argument, you know, in the way that blogging culture works. People would say in the two years since I, between the article and the book, oh, that's an end of men TV show, or that's an end of men story, or there's an end of men character because it's a memorable phrase. And so I considered maybe putting a question mark in the book's uh, cover, but I, I let go of that idea because I like the emotional, not necessarily provocation, but the emotional reaction I think is good. You know, the end of male dominance, actually that's an okay title or the end of macho, but the end of men, <laughs> I mean, for one thing, it's poetic. It's a few short words. It really sticks in your head and it's memorable. So, so, so tell me, so, and, and, you know, uh, so many of the characters you followed in this book were really fascinating American tales that that are not often brought to light, uh, especially the one of the uh, the men you follow all the way through to the end. But so with one or two of your characters, give me a sense of of what it is that is ending for men. It's the sense that they naturally will be the heads of their families. I mean, that's step one, that you had a situation where so many men lost their jobs during the recession, and women, not because they were feminists or because they were marching in the streets, many of the women I interview would probably prefer the old patriarchy and had no interest necessarily in feminism and reject that term. So let's just put that out there. Nonetheless, they found themselves by necessity taking care of their families, being the heads of their families. And in, in, the, in the couple that I begin the book with, it was a situation where I'd met this couple and I was very interested in getting them back together and getting him back home with this woman and her child who was his daughter as well. And I kept trying to engineer their reunion and kept failing until one day the light bulb went off for me and I thought, you know, there's no going back to this old life because the old life doesn't exist anymore. This woman is the head of her family. She's working, she's going to school, she's supporting her child. It's not the life that many women would choose, but it does have a certain amount of independence, and you can't just plop the man right back in and expect her to slot back into her subordinate role. It really doesn't work that way. She's the head of the family. And then it occurred to me that so many more women are the heads of their families now, for better or worse, and that's uh, you know that's a, that's a serious thing. I mean, a woman making more money, a woman running a household, those affect real changes in the psyche of Americans when they live like that for a long time. So that's largely what I'm writing about is these domestic power arrangements. Which in a sense, I mean, now that, that you know, the audience and we understand it more clearly, the, the end of men as you describe it doesn't feel so threatening to me. I mean, in, in, in a sense, it's, it's, it's uh, boy, it takes a little pressure off. Yeah, I mean, this is the conversation I have with my son because I dedicated the book to my middle son, my nine-year-old son, Jacob, because he's, he's very offended. He's at nine years old and he's in the age where, you know, they learn about bullying and he just thinks it's a very mean title, which it is at some level. And what I always say about this is, look, I don't say this to him, he can't fully understand it yet, but I convey it in the best way that I can. 
after the end of men, we don't get, you know, men shipped to the moon. We don't get people not getting married. We're not in the obsolescence of men. We don't kick them out and we don't need them anymore. That's not where we're going with this. Where we're going is, for my son Jacob, is kind of loosening up what it means to be a man. You know, right now men are kind of stuck in a box in the same way women were in 1962. You know, then we had the feminine mystique. Now we have the masculine mystique. We have narrowed the ideas of what it means to be a man so much that it's not serving men well anymore. It probably served them well for tens of thousands of years and it's not serving them well. So if my son Jacob wants to be in a situation where he works four days a week or he has a wife or a fiance or a girlfriend who makes more money than him or you know someone spots him in the playground at three o'clock on a Tuesday, n nobody should think what's wrong with that guy? You know, what's his problem? Is he out of a job? Nobody should write a story about him or write a book about him. It should just be a nothing. You know, it should be no big deal. And I do think progressive younger men are moving in that direction, you know, in the way it normally happens. It's like you get the guys in Brooklyn and San Francisco first and then maybe everybody follows along. So there's a little bit of that happening, but not fast enough. Now on the positive side for women, it, it, you know, I, I was looking through the news magazine racks at Barnes & Noble yesterday trying to think, you know, how can I come at this? Because you've been interviewed a lot by the, uh, about this book. And I said, you know, mm -hmm. what, what can I find that maybe is a different inroad into your insights? And, and so I came across the Harvard Business Review and, and, a, and a business professor who, who you have probably heard of and, and many people follow, Clayton Christensen, uh, mm -hmm. who, who came up with this, uh, this concept or identified this concept, disruptive innovation. You know, when a small, yeah. simple company gets an inroad and sometimes even overtakes a larger company. And, and so, you know, I always wondered, you know, what how can you prevent that? If you're the bigger, more powerful company, how can you thrive and survive when these dis disruptively innovative, smaller, less powerful companies come and nip at your heels? And in some ways, I'm thinking, you know something? What you're describing among women is, uh, is disruptive innovation in motion. Oh my God, how have I not thought of that before? You are so right. <laughs> I'm always trying to think for myself of good analogies because often people look at me quizzically because they think, women especially, I have to say as I've gone through these you know, last few months talking about this book, men are kind of eager to talk about it. It's the opposite of what you would think. Men are not generally afraid. They don't have as much space to talk about what their own confusion and so they're happy to have a space. Women look at me and they say like, are you kidding? But the guys in my office are such jerks and my boss is still a guy. You know, so I'm trying to think of ways to convey to people that part of that feeling of being marginalized, the sort of being the underdog is what's driving women forward, you know? It really is how it's working. You know, the marginalized are always the ones who are more adaptable and hustling. And at some point, that dynamic in and of itself becomes important. And I never thought to call it disruptive innovation. It's exactly what it is. So thank you for that. Well, I'll steal that from you. That's fine. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> so I'm thrilled to hear your reaction to that. And now, we need to delve into this a little more then, because if it's disruptive innovation, I know you have a lot of documentation in your book about the careers that women happen to be in now and thriving in, which happen to be the careers that are growing, the careers of the future. Tell us a little bit about that, because that is part, and maybe this disruptive innovation wasn't intentional. Maybe they, you know, maybe it is, you tell me, was it that women just happened to hit on the right careers? Did they do it with intention or was the, they were the only doors open to them? But, but tell us about where women are really excelling and beginning to dominate that's going to put them in very good position down the road. 
I think, you know, the flexibility itself at some level is the key. What economists always tell me is, you know, I can name for you the 15 professions that are projected to grow the fastest. There are such lists, and it is absolutely true that women absolutely dominate most of them. A lot of them are in the healthcare fields. They're in the service fields, you know, information fields. Uh, men have computers, and basically women have everything else. That's how the list works. But it's not so much about the jobs as women's willingness to retrain themselves. That's the key factor here. So go to college, go to community college, you know, go to that front office and ask what the growing fields are and then get yourself trained for them. That's effectively but what women have been able to do that men have not been able to do. So, you know, in terms of the jobs themselves, I like to refer to this as the sisterhood of the economy. So you have women entering at the top, kind of in law and accounting and pharmacy and certain medical professions. There are certain medical professions which are becoming heavily dominated by women. And then what you have is out of necessity, because so many women, at, more women at the top work, uh, jobs opening up beneath them for the things that wives used to do for free. So this is kind of an accident of history, right? Because the wife is the one who used to do childcare, food preparation, you know, take care of the grandma, all that kind of stuff. And now we farm that out. And because we still think of that as women's work, it's largely women who do that work. So you see how you get this cascade effect, more women at the top, open up jobs for women at the bottom, you know, the number of nannies, like you can just think of all those jobs yourself. Uh, the people buying food, you know, people buying dinner at restaurants instead of making dinner at home. It's like all that stuff has an effect on the economy. Well, okay, so now let me let me suggest that you write another article, and you obviously take it for what it's worth. But this disruptive innovation, so this Harvard Business Review, this month's edition, is now Clayton Christensen writing about surviving disruption. So after all that he's written about how to disrupt, he's given companies and us a guide to, dis to survive disruption. He said, just because you've got a disruptive innovator on your heels does not mean you cannot thrive. You just have to know how. So I turn to you, Hannah, and I say, you know, if you've written the book on the end of men, you probably have some great insights as to how, well, again, some of this might be a good thing that it's the end of certain aspects of manhood. But if we men really want to thrive and we want to, we want to arrive at a place where your son and my son and our daughters are sort of truly equal in the workplace and out of the workplace down the road, what can we men do now that we're not doing to put ourselves in better position? That's an excellent question, and I do think about that a whole lot because I think what's harder for men is that they don't do movements unlike women. You know, women band together, they do movements, they write magazine stories about this stuff, they debate it hotly. The question of masculinity and what it is is kind of debated under the breath, right? It's like a muttered thing, you know? The broad directive is fairly simple. It's, you know, expand your notions and your fears about what it means to be a man. I know that sounds corny and idealistic, but I actually think that's all you can do. So in the workplace, for example, you know, go... Men pay a very heavy penalty for doing, say, childcare, a very simple one. You know, a man wants to take his kid to the doctor. Research shows that men pay a heavy penalty for that. So that's the first thing that men have to break through. There's a lots of studies showing that men do a ton of more childcare than they used to, but they don't actually embrace it as part of their identity. So how can we make that happen, right? How can we make it, you know, manly to be a father? Now, I would say that TV is 
lately in the last two years doing some of that work for us. For the very first time, we have a lot of role models on mainstream sitcoms of men who are one stay-at-home dad wearing baby Bjorns, you know, guys with kids, the NBC show. We've got a handful of them, and they're they're really brand new. Usually a guy with a baby is an idiot in the American sitcom. So, so you know, part of it is just embracing these r- new roles and not thinking of them as feminine. The other thing is, depending who you are, is encourage people to get the training they need for, I mean, that's very simple, the training they need for the jobs that are opening up. So I go to a southern town in which the men, anybody from a small town has probably seen this happen. In small towns where manufacturing leaves, and they can be medium-sized towns, which used to be fairly prosperous, very recently, probably up until 2000, a lot of what you have left are government jobs, healthcare industry, and a hospital, right? You have you generally have a big medical center, and then you have teaching jobs and hospital jobs. And the guys would tell me, you know, there's no way I'm going to be a teacher. That's a that's a that's a woman's job. Or there's no way I'm going to work in the hospital. That's a woman's job. So I think that's another thing where you have to kind of expand people's notions of what it's okay to do. Uh, and then finally, you know, we are meeting people halfway. You're starting to hear trickle of stories about the return of the manufacturing economy. Uh, Apple just reported today that it was going to move some of its base back to the U.S. So I think, you know, both Republicans and Democrats are thinking pretty seriously about all that we lost when we moved our jobs overseas. However, here's my big however, we're never going to go back to 1980 where you could be a guy without a high school degree and have a great, you know, middle class prosperous life. That's just not going to happen anymore. You still need to get yourself some skills. So put that out there for men to hear, you know, do that two years of community college training, you know, figure out what jobs are available in your neighborhood. Don't think a lot of men that I interview think of school is like, that's what girls do. I'm not going to waste my time in school. You know, men should be making money. So just get over some of these ideas of what men do and don't do. And the way for them to get over that, and if I'm not mistaken, there there is a part of your book where I mean, well, you, you talk about sex a lot in your book, and you talk about the hookup culture among bright young women, uh, which I have heard psychologists talk about as, as, as not necessarily healthy uh, for women, but, but you have a different take on it, and, and you divide. There are two types of men that the smart, achieving women who are in that hookup culture basically divide up the world into and they're they're the higher educated men and the lower educated men is it do i have that pretty much right yes more or less i mean the hookup culture is largely about college girls so if we just stick to college girls it's you know then we're mostly talking about higher educated men it's just kind of what which guys in the in the kind of sex scene or in the hookup scene like which role the guys play you know are you a player are you a loser like which guy are a you a player in that that, that scene? those were the terms used a player yeah versus a loser and man if, right. if, if I have a choice of two categories you know there's no question I want to be in that first category is is avoiding being a loser simply a matter of getting an education yes and no not necessarily because it also has to do I mean one of the things that's happening too is not just about men getting an education or men out of work or going on disability it also has to do with family responsibilities God I I really am starting to sound very moralistic here but um, there is a way in which men don't uh, you know, n- nobody's getting married, and that's okay. You know, in Europe, lots of people don't get married, but also men are not necessarily they're dropping out of their roles in the family too, kind of taking care of kids. You know, that's happening to greater and greater numbers of Americans. So, 
single motherhood is something I write about a lot, the, the incredible explosion in single motherhood just because women are doing it alone, feeling like they don't need men around, and, uh, and then men just kind of drop out of the picture. So, so some of it is that, sort of how do we put a stop to all that? You know, you talked about men don't, don't do movements like women do, mm-hmm. and it made me think of a guy who at some point I'm going to interview uh, for, for either this show or somewhere else. I met him packing my bags at Whole Foods, and I knew he was military because every other word out of his mouth was, yes, sir, yes, sir, this is the way I'm doing this, sir, is that okay, sir? And uh, nobody ever packed my bags, my grocery bags, as neatly as this guy did. And, uh-huh. and, and when I started talking to him, I, I said, have you just you know, come back from the service? He said, yes, he's been a Marine, he was in Iraq, and he worked at that Whole Foods. I thought he, he was so good, he could have managed the whole place, but he was doing odds and ends, odds and ends here and there, uh, enjoying everything he did and then he told me he's leaving Whole Foods because he's training to become a nurse and then I thought oh that it could be it defied my concept of what a former Marine would do but he wants to go into healthcare. he'd seen his his fellow Marines suffer on the battlefield uh, he's great under pressure and this is what he's gonna do and you talk about a movement if if we could get that guy's story out uh, you could get a lot more men in that field couldn't you yeah, we love that guy. That's exactly what happens to the guy in the introduction of my book, which I was really surprised by. I mean, it's the guy who who sort of led me off down this path, talking to him and his wife, the one I earlier talked about, trying to get him and his wife back together. And I called him up a couple of years later, or maybe it was 18 months later, and he told me he was going to nursing school, and I was <laughs> my jaw dropped. I was completely shocked. And that's the way I end my book. Now, since writing the book, you know, I have mixed feelings about it because men's response to that has been, so fine, you're just saying we just have to feminize you know we just have to turn into women and that's how we survive in the economy i'm not really exactly saying that because as i said there's lots of options in between like you know high-end manufacturing you don't have to turn into a woman but yes something like that i say the same thing about teachers all the time we have a boy education crisis which i write about in the book it's fairly incontrovertible all the experts say it's true nobody agrees on why it's happening and we don't talk about it nearly as much as they do in other countries because i think it feels weird for us to think of boys needing a lot of help nonetheless it exists and how much of that could we solve if men would become teachers? Uh, by the a way, by, lot. By I the, mean, by the way, to just define what you mean by a boy education crisis for the audience. What I mean is that boys, for reasons that we are having trouble explaining, do a lot worse than girls in school almost from a very early age. Uh, it goes on through. I write about colleges and you know, effectively girls graduate at much greater rates and in the private colleges they practice quietly affirmative action for boys, for young men. And in the lower school you have a lot more boys dropping out and you just have boys having a lot more problems in school starting very, very early on. And this has been tracked now for, you know, 15, 20 years. It's been going on for a long time. So I think you know, there are many, many, many interesting theories about why this is going on, some of which I find more convincing than others. But we all feel intuitively that if you had more guys as teachers, that would help a lot. You'd have guys who kind of understood how boys are, how they behave, what would be interesting to boys. You'd have boys, you know, who had men to look up to and think, oh, this dude is cool. This dude studies. You know, he understands me. He, you know, it's okay to study. Like, they would just generally be good. Um, but but for some reason, there's reluctance. You know, maybe reluctance because, you know, teachers don't earn en- enough money. You know, I'm not saying this is an easy choice to make. But if there were, if we gave government, I, I got in a fight with a concern conservative about this one day because I'm thinking like it'd be fine to me if we had subsidies affirmative action for for men who wanted to go into teaching I'd be all for that why not 
So let's let's end let's end on a family note because you're a mother, I'm a father. How many children do you have? I have three children. I have a daughter and then a son and then a toddler son. Okay, and, and I have three children. Uh, uh, a 14, 14 year old is my oldest, and nine year old is my youngest. And so, you know, very much like the journalists of today, I want to know the ending. I want to know that everything's that we both want to know everything's going to be okay with them. And yet, the the approach you just described as a journalist waiting, not knowing what the ending's going to be, is the attitude we parents have to take, because we really don't know what the ending's going to be. Shed some light on me. Is is there any... Uh, do, the two, do your two skills meet, the journalism skill, the patience that it requires to get a great story, and the patience that it requires, and the faith that things will turn out all right with your kids? Tell me about your parenting. Oh, boy, have you come to the wrong person. I'm a chaos person, not an order person. (laughs) I'm definitely a little bit fatalistic. I believe there's not that much that I can control. My children are very different, and I'm of the philosophy, and I write this about my son because I also write, you know, where does my journalism and my parenting come together around the end of men? And this particular book is when when I do say, do I raise my children differently since knowing this information? And the answer is, yes, I do raise my children differently, but not in the sense that I try and force my son to be one way or make my daughter be another way but in the sense of giving them tools like I kind of understand the world better they haven't changed at all but I have a better understanding of the world so I I, I try very hard say to give my son who's an excellent student but I can see it comes at a great cost to him you know he he feels that school is like not built that it's rigged against him you know I try and give him as many tools as I can to to meet the standards of school as it is Uh, but I don't try to change him and I don't try and change school to kind of come to a desired outcome, if you know what I mean. There's the chaos of the world and the chaos of his personality, and then I try and build a little bridge between those two, so so that's how I approach it. And so and so, you don't expect to, to be able to, obviously, determine the outcome, but do you have this sense of sort of inner peace, and does your husband, that whatever happens, it'll happen, and we're doing what we can, and we don't need to do more than we're doing now? I mean, you know, on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays, but not Sundays and, you know, some some moments I absolutely have that sense that, the you know, that things will work out as they'll work out and I have very little control over them and other times I don't. I, I can't do any better than that. Other times I feel like it's a colliding train wreck and I'll never be able to get it back on the rails. Well, listen, g- uh, continued good luck. <laughs> continued good luck with your writing. I'm, uh, I'm actually... A, that, that that gave me a sense of empowerment, actually, because you because know, <laughs> you know because when there's chaos and there's nothing you can do about it, it, it takes the pressure off a little bit. So, I agree. I agree. So uh, th- uh, once again, Hannah Rosen, uh, the end of men, and you had to throw that in, and the rise of women. But we know now from speaking with her that this is not a zero sum game, correct? Yes, it's not a zero. It's not a zero sum game. So for all our sons and daughters. Uh, let's get educated with this book and then take it to the next level. And uh, what would the sequel to this book be? If you had to write After one. the End of Men? After the End of Men? I don't know. I feel like I didn't do a service to men. I didn't think of enough. Uh, your last question, kind of what do we as men do, is one that comes up a lot and that I don't feel I did justice to in the book. So it would be something like that. So what happens now? You know, you've described what is, so what happens next? Okay. If you Do me a favor. If you write that book, at least give us on CNN Profiles the first interview. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Hannah Rosen, for joining us on CNN Profiles. Thank you. 
By the way, you can find CNN Profiles on our website, cnn.com soundwaves, or download us from iTunes, or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.